There is a significant challenge in really driving more sustainable and more effective health systems across the global south as it relates to energy. And that is the need for effectively a new generation of medical equipment and medical devices that have been designed to function in areas where you may be running a clinic with a really small scale renewable energy system or where a clinic has a, a grid connection that goes out all the time and is really inconsistent. is the lack of appropriately designed medical equipment and medical devices that can function with, let's say, a, a really small renewable energy system in order to um, do what they're supposed to do over, over, the life, over the lifetime of those products. And what we see right now is that there is effectively no supply chains and very limited availability of those kinds of medical equipment and uh, medical devices. That was Jeff Stottlemyre, a global expert on off-grid appliances, and this is the Power for All podcast, a forum for leaders working to end energy poverty. I'm your host, William Brent. Jeff joins us from CLASP, an organization that has probably done more than anyone to ensure that poor people around the world have access to appropriate and affordable appliances, fans, refrigerators, water pumps, and even TVs. Jeff works on the Clean Energy Access Program at CLASP and has done a lot of other very cool stuff professionally, but for me anyway, a brief stint as a farmhand at a Zen Buddhist Center is by far the most interesting. Welcome, Jeff. Thanks, Will. Very happy to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you as well. Um, So one positive outcome, Jeff, that we've seen from COVID-19 is that it has highlighted a silent humanitarian crisis that has been persisted for far too long. And that's namely that the fact that hundreds of millions of people in Africa and Asia are still served by rural health clinics that have no electricity. Efforts are gaining momentum to change that, but what's come to light in the process is that this is much more than just about deploying solar panels and some batteries and ensuring they are operated and maintained for the life of that system. As important, if not more so, is the need for medical devices that are able to actually work in these clinics clinics once they're electrified. So CLASP has come out with this new report, Jeff. If you could just summarize what the key headline is that we should take away from it, that would be really great to just kick off the conversation. Yeah. So um, we're, we're releasing this report through the Efficiency for Access Coalition, and it talks about a critical, but from our perspective, really underappreciated challenge um, facing efforts to you know, build and invest in more resilient and more effective health systems across the global south. Um, and that is the lack of uh, appropriately designed medical equipment and medical devices that can function with, let's say, a, a really small renewable energy system in a remote off-grid clinic or you know, a clinic in maybe a peri-urban area that has a grid connection, but the grid goes out all the time um, and the quality of that energy supply is, is very poor. Um, medical devices and, and, and appliances have to be designed differently um, than they are in the global north in order to function, um, do what they're supposed to do over over the life over the lifetime of those products. And what we see right now is that there is um, uh, effectively no supply chains uh, and 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 very limited availability of those kinds of medical equipments and uh, medical devices. And that's affecting the lives of hundreds of millions of people, right? I mean, essentially, 
those people in those catchment areas where those clinics exist without electricity have no no even not even the possibility even if they had the money to buy it there wouldn't be, even be the possibility to to buy anything because the the products don't exist right yeah um what we see is is effectively a total disconnect between the global supply chain of medical devices and medical equipment and the needs that are presented by uh especially primary health uh center level clinics oftentimes in remote villages um you know they, they need products that are highly energy efficient that are very durable that can operate in harsh environments um, and uh, in in most places and in terms of most types of medical equipment, um, those products just don't exist. And just to sort of explain a little bit more around this, I mean, you have uh, you know a global market of medical devices used in hospitals and clinics. Um, they're mostly manufactured uh, for uh, consistent grid connected uh, facilities, right? Uh, and so how much energy and electricity they use is really unimportant, right? Because there's a steady supply and, you know, they don't need to be made for uh, circumstances where, you know, energy efficiency and reducing the amount of electricity required becomes really important. And that's why the work that you're trying to, to, to focus on here is around how do you create device, medical devices that are energy efficient, that don't require the amount of power that typically the devices on the market today require. Is that, is that accurate? That's correct. Yes. Um, I think that, uh, you know, the, the mainstream, the conventional medical equipment and medical device supply chain and, and the manufacturers of those devices, um, they're, they're um, optimizing their products to ensure that they deliver service consistently, consistently and safely. Um, so when you think about, you know, if, if uh, you know your listeners have had the chance to go into a clinical setting in the you know global north, for lack of a better term, um, the you plug something in and, and the amount of energy you need to, to to you know the amount of energy you have access to is effectively infinite, right? And so um, people have primarily been concerned with: is the thing going to turn on? Is it going to do what it's supposed to do? And you know, is it going to hurt me <laughs> when I'm you know when someone's using it uh, to to provide health services? And um, so frankly, energy consumption and, and certainly energy efficiency is oftentimes not even in the conversation while, when, uh, when these companies are designing the products. And in fact, in the interviews we did with some of the larger global um, medical equipment manufacturers, they spoke very frankly about you know, never having even considered efficiency as a, as a product design principle. And so you know, that's really the starting point uh, you know, for, for our work. Right. So what I'm hearing is that, number one, perhaps with the exception of cold chain and refrigeration, these types of appliances don't really exist. And if they do exist, they often don't work. In your report, you cited a WHO statistic from 2010, which estimated that up to 70 percent of medical devices in the global south did not function. Can you can you talk a little bit about why that is when what you found that would result in that type of situation? Sure. Yeah, there's a couple of things, uh, a couple of parts to that answer. Maybe first is it's a it's a little sort of wonky, um, but it has to do with just the, the nature and the quality of energy supply that's often found uh, in, in these types of areas. So, you know, if a if a clinic has no electricity access at all, obviously it's a non-starter. You're not able to power any medical devices. Um, but many uh, clinics have 
what we would call a, a weak grid or a bad grid connection, where there's frequent brownouts, uh, blackouts. And then um, beyond that, when there is energy supply, the quality of it often fluctuates very substantially, right? So what, what that means is voltage can swing, you know, much higher and much lower than um, it does on mains grid in the global north. Um, and just the amount of available energy um, can, can vary as well greatly. And these electrical devices have to be designed to handle that because if they're not designed with sort of the inbuilt um, technology to, to function with this kind of variable energy supply, they break. Uh, and that's, you know, it was somewhat surprising to us to learn that the number one cause of equipment failure in most of these, most of these communities and most of these clinical settings is actually um, inconsistency and in, in, in quality of energy supply. And just to, to, to maybe give a bit more of an anecdotal discussion of what this means is, you know, we've talked to some, uh, you know, we, we interviewed um, a few health service providers, um, you know, who are uh, working in these communities and, and, and you know, trying to navigate these challenging clinical settings. And, you know, one of the companies we interviewed literally sent us a picture of a barn that they had to build that was just full of broken equipment. They, they, they had so much equipment that would break and it would break so frequently that they needed to build a, a storage facility for it because they couldn't take it off site uh, quickly enough. So just the nature of the energy supply itself is a major challenge. Then beyond that, you know, the reason why, one of the underlying reasons why it's, it's challenging to really think about developing a commercial market here generally is that in the global north, there's uh, sometimes a glut of medical equipment, medical devices. Maybe regulations change and, and a type of medical device is no longer you know, allowed to be sold in a given market. And what we see happening a lot is that those types of products are just donated. Uh, another word for it in the appliance world is dumped uh, into markets where those regulations don't exist and where there is, of course, a need for equipment, right? So not all of these, not all of this happens, you know, for bad reasons. A lot of times I think large, you know, large global companies think that they're helping by, you know, donating massive amounts of equipment for free. But, you know, what that results in is, you know, if you are working in a clinic, oftentimes, uh, you know, in a, in a clinic with no electricity or, or poor electricity connection, oftentimes the only products you have access to are these products that by definition are not built to succeed and function for a long period of time um, in these areas. And so it, it makes it, you know, just the, the lack of availability of any options, right, sort of traps a lot of clinical uh, clinical organizations and service providers into this vicious cycle of, of having to use equipment that's inappropriately designed, and then it breaks, and then it's laying around, and you've got to get more of it, and it's sort of the, the same thing happens all over again. Yeah, but that, just to be clear, I mean, that's, that's only, I mean, that equipment that's getting dumped, I mean, it can only be used in clinics that have access to electricity. For the ones that don't even have access to electricity, those types of, of devices and appliances wouldn't even be usable, right? Because there's just not a, enough electricity uh, or a consistent enough supply of electricity to use those, right? Yeah, and that's a whole other um, dynamic that the report goes into in, in great detail that we haven't talked about much yet today. I mean, there's so these clinics that have bad grid connections are, are a major you know, percentage of clinics throughout the global south. But there are also a shockingly large number of clinics that operate with no electricity. And I think we have, over the, since the, the onset of the COVID pandemic, certainly, we have you know, rightly seen 
an increased recognition of this as a challenge in both the energy world and the health, the public health world. There are, you know, I think, again, rightly, uh, a number of major new initiatives and investments that are focused explicitly on providing energy systems, renewable energy, energy systems, you know, to these clinics that have no access to electricity. And so the, the challenge there is that these initiatives are very complicated and they're very resource intensive in and of themselves. And what we see is typically you know, because of resource constraints, right, because of the need to prioritize uh, and, you know, make trade-offs in terms of what a program can actually do, we, we tend to see this type of effort focus primarily on the provision of an energy system by itself. And so if a clinic doesn't have any energy, it doesn't have any access to energy, you drop in a solar panel, uh, you know, PV array, you know, a battery, uh, maybe a diesel generator backup, and maybe put a few lights on it, maybe include one of these vaccine refrigerators, potentially, but not always. And that's, uh, that seems to be sort of about the limit of, of what happens in a lot of places. And so, you know, what that results in is, of course, you know, lighting is absolutely critical energy service for clinical settings. And it is rightly the, you know, the, the starting point, I think, for a lot of this work. But then, you know, once you have the lights on, you need basic diagnostic tools. You need to be able to, to provide various types of primary healthcare services that require appliances and devices that use energy, you know, sterilizers, things like that. And so, you know, what we're advocating for in, in, in those instances is to think a little more holistically at the level of program design and incorporate these appliances and equipment into the uh, sort of the, the structure of these kinds of interventions. Right. In other words, you know, let's not just put a bunch of solar panels on the roof here uh, and call it good, but let's actually bundle with those solar panels uh, devices that are appropriate for those settings that can provide a real healthcare solution. Um, so, but but I think what what I also took away from this report is that. You know, in order to do that, you, you need some sort of consensus globally on, um, you know, what devices are actually needed in these rural communities. Uh, and then those, once you have a, a list of those uh, devices, you, you need clear quality and technical standards. But that doesn't even seem to exist either. No, no, it doesn't. And when we lifted up the hood on this issue, uh, it quickly turned into one of the most complicated things, at least that I've ever worked on. Um, and you know what you've just pointed out is is a is a big driver of that. Um, I mean, there are to answer your your question directly. Yes, there is no clear and you know more or less uniformly accepted guidance on what types of appliances should be in in various types of clinical settings, with the explicit purpose of designing an energy system for those clinical settings. There are many different lists of recommended equipment. You know, for healthcare facilities, but you know what we found when we started digging into you know with the contents of those lists is that oftentimes they include everything. They include bandages, benches, tables, the chemical agents you need to perform lab tests, and electrical appliances. And the the information about the appliances is sometimes just the name of the appliance, right? And then let's say you took one of those lists and you're trying to design an energy system, you might find that oh, there's actually 15 different designs of this kind of appliance. And some of them may even use completely different physical or chemical processes to deliver that service, let alone understanding the range of energy requirements that some of these 
that these different kinds of devices may present. And so, you know, the, the lists that exist have not been created from a clinic electrification or energy system design perspective. So that's, that's one challenge. And then another, I think, a, a challenge that's probably related to that is that at the country level, ministries of health everywhere, you know, provide guidance on allowable equipment, whether it's in terms of regulating importation or with the purpose of helping, uh, you know, health uh, healthcare providers understand what should be in these clinical settings. But those lists are different everywhere. And the differences are can be extreme. You know, one country may have just one list of appliances that you can import into it that have been approved, and it might be a thousand items long. Another country may have very detailed guidance on, you know, appliances that should be in a hospital, in a regional clinic, in a primary health clinic. But then another country would have a same breakout, and those two countries would have completely different lists of, of devices in terms of what they're telling you should be in a, in a, in a given type of clinic. And so if you are a, um, certainly an energy company, right, that's trying to meet this need um, of you know, providing energy systems for clinical settings, when you're trying to design your systems, your, your solutions, it's very hard to even know where to start in terms of identifying the appropriate appliances and devices that should be included in an energy system, let alone understanding what the potential energy requirements are and where to start you know, looking for suppliers. It's it's a it's a it's a very complicated network, and there and there you know that lack of clear and consistent guidance I think is a is a major inhibitor of of making progress there. Okay, so let's say that that barrier that you talked about that's inhib- inhibiting at the moment were removed, and there were you know there was a consensus on standards and quality and all of the things that you're talking about. Is there a role for bulk procurement in simplifying that whole ecosystem and bringing down the cost of these devices significantly? Absolutely. And I think that's also where we can go back and and just recognize the immense amount of progress that's been made in the vaccine uh, cold chain, um, the off-grid you know, vaccine cold chain sector. Health systems in, in many countries in the global south are supported by large-scale, you know, oftentimes donor-funded initiatives. Those initiatives frequently include procurement of equipment, and you know, in addition to that, there's the uh, these you know new uh, and you know increasingly large scale clinic electrification initiatives that include various types of energy system um, infrastructure as well. And so, I think if you if you start to incorporate you know a more holistic approach to appliances, right, and medical equipment in many of these you know, large scale interventions that include, you know, pretty big procurement components that would do, and, and, and by, by include, I mean, if these, if, if the language, right, uh, in these sort of procurement terms specify that an energy system needs to be equipped with an appropriate suite of appliances that have been designed, right, to function with limited and inconsistent energy supply and in harsh sort of operating environments, that right there would send a critical signal to the sort of existing mainstream uh, global medical equipment supply chains, as well as I think provide a helpful opening for startups that may be interested in in focusing explicitly on this need. Um, you know, it would it would it would give them a much clearer path to growth and path to market. So yes, I, I think procurement, assuming we address some of these you know earlier challenges, right, or more fundamental challenges about just understanding what should be in these places. Uh, in these kinds of clinics and um, you know how these appliances should perform 
um, procurement is it will also be critical to um, you know solving the problem and 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 helping us sort of create a, a much more sustainable uh, supply chain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the report, I think you also talked about something you I think you called sector silos. Can you explain a little bit more about that? I mean, that's an area where we at Power for All are working quite closely on trying to break down those silos. But can you elaborate on why these silos are making this kind of uh, intervention more difficult? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the the one of the challenges just in general thinking about the health and energy nexus is that the health world and the energy world, certainly the energy access world, have not historically you know, moved in the, in the same um, orbits. And so some of the most important work that's getting done and has been done right, by organizations like Power for All, of course, and you know, also SE for All's Powering Healthcare Initiative and, and um, some other uh, you know, important global initiatives have just been focused on creating space for energy sector players and health sector players to talk about the challenges you know, in general. You know, those efforts are, 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 you know, all to some degree still somewhat nascent um, and I think have rightly been focused on, you know, the highest level strategic challenges around how do you even make the case, you know, that this is an important issue, which seems, you know, kind of surprising that this is a case that has to be made, right, that energy is important for health service delivery, but it's not intuitive uh, or it certainly wasn't intuitive for, for quite a while. You know, so they've been focused on that. They've been focused on unlocking, you know, the highest level commitments to invest. They've been focused on policy issues, right? They just haven't had the the resources or the mandate really to get into what is a technical, complex, very challenging set of issues related to medical equipment. And so, uh, you know, we see uh, a real need for creating forums for even industry players, right? For these medical equipment designers and suppliers to talk with the companies that are, you know, designing uh, renewable energy powered solutions for primary health care centers, right, in rural areas, just to understand what the operating environments are like and, and what the nature of these energy systems are uh, so that they can sort of translate that into the design of the equipment, right? There, that, fostering that kind of dialogue at sort of a high level and in a sort of transparent, open and ongoing way we think is critical uh, to making progress here. But then even beyond the, the sort of the need for, for industry, for better industry dialogue, I think um, elevating the sort of broader question of medical equipment in the existing you know, discussions uh, that have been facilitated you know, in, in the forums that were started to try and break down the energy and health silos generally. I think that, that you know, it's, it's time uh, for that to happen. And you know, we're, we're looking forward to, to helping do that. Yeah, agreed. So where do we go from here? Uh, you, you've done an initial scan of, of the, the issue uh, and the challenge, uh, but it's a big opportunity, I suppose, as well, if you want to look at it that way. Where, where, where does class think we need to go? Well, the report very helpfully lays out a set of specific recommendations. And, you know, I think from CLASP's perspective and from perspective of the Efficiency for Access Coalition, there are a you know there are a few of these puzzle pieces that we can get started on right away and so the first thing that i you know i think we'd like to do is leverage our expertise and understanding around appliance performance appliance testing uh, and appliance standards development um, to help you know in collaboration with or i should say to work in collaboration with some of the leading public health organizations who have been doing the most and sort of the most sophisticated thinking about this challenge 
to help address that sort of first and most fundamental barrier of just understanding what's the most broadly applicable suite of devices that should be included in a sort of truly off-grid um, clinical setting, right? And, and sort of formatting and structuring that guidance with the explicit purpose of aiding energy, energy system design. So that's one thing. And then beyond that, I think there's a lot of, you know, a lot of sort of technical foundation development that, that again, I think CLASP and the Efficiency for Access Coalition is interested in supporting. And that has to do with just testing products, trying to understand what, what the energy requirements are of some of the products that are already in these places, right? Just, you know, putting, putting together some sort of data sets that allow us to understand the nature of the challenge right now from that technical perspective. So, you know, uh, there's that kind of technical work. And then I think also just starting that dialogue, right? Creating that convening space that we'd love to do with, um, you know, any interested partners uh, who may be listening to this. Um, that's another critical first step because I think there is where we're gonna be able to bring in all the perspectives that are needed to make progress on things like procurement, um, you know, things like policy development. And, and so, yeah, I guess that's, those, those are the two starting points, I guess, from our perspective. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah. Um, and you, you're at class.ngo. Is that the website? That's right. Yes. Okay. And the report will be downloadable from your website? There, as well as the Efficiency for Access Coalition's website. Um, so CLASP is the co-secretariat of the Efficiency for Access Coalition, which is a group of donors who are all you know, interested in and, and invested in the use of you know, super energy efficient appliances to drive energy access. Um, and, you know, it's through the Efficiency for Access Coalition that we've done this work. Um, and it's you know, also through that coalition that we look forward to, to moving forward with some of the next steps. Great. Well, thanks so much, Jeff. It's great to see you guys doing this important work and look forward to seeing what, ha what comes from it. Great. Thanks, Will. It's a pleasure. Thanks, everyone, for listening. A reminder that you can find a wealth of sector news, analysis, and data on our website, powerforall.org and our platform for energy access knowledge, which we call PEAK, P-E-A-K. You can also sign up for our monthly newsletter and other updates. And if you feel like making a tax-deductible contribution to Power for All, you can do so from our homepage. Speak with you soon on the next episode of Power for All.